We're in this formed series, the uh, um, uh, formed, and we're talking about spiritual practices. This, uh, my sermon today is on the spiritual pra- uh, practice of worship, which is convenient because we're here in worship together, so that's going to work out great. But I want to do a little bit of review and go back and let you know, again, what it is that we're doing. We're talking about formed, but the concept is of spiritual formation. It's a biblical concept. Here's the definition of spiritual formation we covered about three weeks, weeks ago. Spiritual formation is a change that comes from the inside out. As the Holy Spirit is constantly at work to shape us into the image of Jesus. It's change that's coming from the inside out. Not because we're mustering up the strength to do something differently or to, or to change ourselves, which we can do for a bit, for a short period of time, with, certain, with limited results. But this is change that comes from the inside out as the Holy Spirit is constantly at work to shape us into the image of Jesus. And you see the words there, we are, not, we are changed. This is the hope that it gives us is that we're not stuck. We're actually becoming more and more and more what we were created to be. The image that God had of us from eternity past when he designed you before you were in your mother's womb with your gifts and your strengths and your personality and your contribution and the life that you could live, that person is being shaped and redeemed out of its brokenness, and helped out of its inabilities by the power of God. So we are not stuck. You're not stuck in the version of you that you currently are. Some of you might take offense at that. The rest of you are like, amen. Uh, We're becoming who God designed for us to be. That's what spiritual formation is. And the good news is, is that God has given us some spiritual practices that help facilitate that change. Did you hear that phrase? God's given us some spiritual practices that help facilitate that change. This is what spiritual practices are, or they're called spiritual disciplines. They're intentional ways of acting or living, which set us before God. They set us in the presence of God so that the Holy Spirit can do his transforming work in us. Spiritual practices are things that we're going to put in our lives, not because we're going to change ourselves. We already know the limited power of that. But spiritual practices are ways of living or ways of acting, things that we're going to do that actually put us in God's presence to facilitate this transforming work of the Holy Spirit. That's what a spiritual practice is. So this formed series is about what these spiritual practices are. How is it that we can put ourselves in these places where God can come and do his work? And we talked about, um, Greg, after that first sermon about, uh, about spiritual formation, where I defined those things, Greg, uh, two weeks ago, talked about the spiritual practice of silence, for example. Do you remember that? The verse in Scripture, be still and know that I am God. This is the spiritual practice of being silent in a way, being still and being quiet. I think he called it sitting down and shutting up, where we realize that we're not the Lord of our lives, where we stop and reflect in stillness, that God is God, and the battle is his, and the strength is his, and we're in his hands. So instead of controlling and managing and manipulating life and fretting about it, we stop. The practice is stop, be still, and silent, and believe that he's God. That puts us in a place where the Holy Spirit can work on us, right? He talked last week about fasting. Fasting being this personal sacrifice, this releasing control by giving something up so that we're able to then get away from dependence on other things or you just be reminded of our need for dependence on God. That's what fasting is. It's breaking free from some attachments we've made so that it reminds us that what we really want is to be attached to God. It's stopping some things that give us some joy or comfort, maybe too much joy and comfort and life and peace. The stuff that we're 
grasping for to make us happy and content. We're kind of going to let go of those for a while to say, God, you're the one that gives me life and joy and peace and contentment. That's what fasting is. You see how it's a spiritual practice. It's a way of living. It's an activity that we can do that sets us in the presence of God so the Holy Spirit can change us. That's what fasting is. And we talked about it on Ash Wednesday as well. That was just last Wednesday. And many of us started a Lenten fast together. How's that going? How you doing? Are you doing all right? Some of you were like, really? When did Lent start? I missed it. I had a soccer tournament last Sunday. Hey, get on board with us. This is really fun. Let's just, let's talk about this for just a second. We hope that you join this Lenten season, which is a 40 days before Easter. It's a time of relinquishing control of some of these things, sacrificing something that will remind us in the loss of that or the longing for that or the missing that, remind us that God is the one that brings life. For some of us, we've got to get rid of something that's really become too important. So we turn to God. Some of this is just stuff that's in our lives. It's a good, when it's even good, but it reminds us to put our trust in the best. And so many of us are fasting for this, this time. And uh, I hope that's going well for you. I hope that you've had a good experience. If you haven't started the fast with us, this is so, what's so great about our church. We're so not religious and, un, and so gracious. Like, get on board and do your, it's not a 40-day fast now, it's a 35-day fast. Like, get on board. Do something with us. And, um, and we'll experience it together through these next few weeks. But that's what, that's what fasting is. By the way, um, here's what came out of the conversation after Art's sermon and Ash Wednesday. The number one frequently asked question was, they thought, did I hear you say that it was a 40-day fast because it's 40 days plus six Sundays? So it's really 46 days to Easter. But it was a 40-day fast, and the six Sundays were six little mini freedoms from my fast. Did I hear you say that? People were looking for the loopholes is what I'm saying. Yes, you can take any loophole you want to take. You can fast just on Monday mornings from your fourth cup of coffee. Like that could be your fast if you want. If that's all you got in you, man, like God bless you. But no, yes, yeah, true. Traditionally, the 40 days of fasting are the days not counting the Lord's day, not counting Sunday. And so there's this mini freedom, this mini celebration, this mini just joy. Uh, it's not all hard and discipline, and God loves it when you're miserable. Like it's this middle of the, of the you know, every six-day experience of not worrying about it and being free. So some of you want to uh, do that. Others are like somebody had a conversation with us last night and said, hey, listen, I'm all, it's got to be all or nothing for me. Like I cannot be like on Sunday like, you know. Like, if that's you, yeah, for sure. Like, I'm going to do mine 46 days. I'm not going to stop in the middle. So whatever you got to do, do that. But I hope that, and again, just by way of review and wanting to invite you into this fasting experience, I hope that you, um, remember what, you, what, what Art and Brenda, they were over here and what they did when they made the mark of the, the ashes, the sign of the cross in ashes on your forehead. They said, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what they said when they made the imposition of the ashes. So I hope what happens for you in these next few weeks, the last five days in these next few weeks, is that when you experience that longing, whatever it is, the caffeine headache, the twitching because you want to look at your phone and find what's on Facebook and how many likes you got, or the draw to that sugar craving that you have at 4.30 p.m., or whatever the thing is that you sort of sense that longing that you've given up, maybe this is a good way for you to remember that you would at that moment repent and believe. That you would repent, you'd say, God, how, how important has this thing become to, for me? My goodness. I wish I 
hungered for you that much. So there'd be a sense of just turning toward him. Repent. This has become too big for me. I can't believe how it's become that important. I can't believe what a crab apple I am because I gave up carbs. Are you kidding me? Carbs are that important? What a desperate creature I am, God. Turn to God and repent of your attachment to that. Repent and believe. Believe in the good news. Believe in the good news that God is the one who brings life. And so as you feel that longing, say, I can't, I can't believe it's so important to me. But then believe in the good news. God, I want you to be my everything. I want to hunger for you the way I hunger for that loss. I want you to meet my needs like nothing else could meet my needs. I want you to be the life and joy and peace. I want you to be the single attachment in my life. How about that as a pattern? Repent and believe as you face that thing that you're missing. Okay, that was a little mini summary because we didn't want any of you who missed last Sunday or missed uh, Ash Wednesday to, uh, to not join in in this Lenten fast with us because it's a, fasting is a spiritual practice that sets us before God in a way that the Holy Spirit can do his transforming work. And this morning, for the rest of the time I have with you this morning in terms of the sermon, I want to talk about the spiritual practice of worship. By the way, you in? Are you guys going to do fasting? Everybody, everybody, somebody fasting from stuff? Raise your hand if you're in with us on that. And that's awesome. Raise your hand if you're like, I never thought of it, and I'm thinking about it right now. That doesn't sound very fun. Okay. The spiritual practice of worship. Again, the spiritual practice of worship would be a way of living in such a way, a way of experiencing worship, a way of living or acting, that we'd be able to set ourselves in God's presence. That's actually what we do here. That's why we call this our worship gathering. We set ourselves in God's presence in such a way that God can come. His Holy Spirit can, can do his transforming work in us. But I just want to ask a few questions by, by the way of understanding what the spiritual practice would be. Look at one scripture in a couple of moments. Here's a question. What is it? What is worship? How do you define worship? Here's a general definition. It's straight out of the dictionary. Worship is adoring reverence. It's finding worth or value in something and responding appropriately. It's finding value. It's worthship is what it, what it actually means. In the Greek, it, it means to bow down before. It's saying, wow, you, this is worth something. It's valuable, and I'm going to respond to how valuable it is. We hardly use this term in regular language without it being kind of religiously expressed, unless it's negative. Sometimes we use it in the negative. We go, oh, well, you know, she worships the ground that he walks on, or, you know, he worships the 49ers. And it's sort of a little bit of a, like, really, that's what he worships. So we hardly ever use it. But just in terms of what a, what a Christian definition would be, here's, here's the way it is, this, the way we use it. Worship is a grateful, intentional response to who God is and what he has done. Worship is a grateful and intentional response to who God is and what he's done. It's a response. It's responding to God and it's responding out of our gratefulness. And it's making a choice to do it. It's an intentionality. But we're being grateful for who God is and what God has done. I want to illustrate it by a passage of Scripture that is familiar to many of us. I've preached on it a couple times in the last few years, uh, but want to read it again by way of illustrating this idea of worship. It's from, from Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, 36 and following. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Jesus went and and uh, went to have dinner with him, reclined at the table. That's because when you ate back then, you, they had these little low tables that were in the center of the room, and people reclined and sort of leaned on one elbow or on cushions and, and, uh, and then ate the food with their feet, uh, their dirty, nasty, you know, trail-trodden feet out to the back, away from the table. 
And so they laid there. And so Jesus came and reclined at the table and had a meal with him. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. She obviously had a, some kind of an encounter with Jesus prior to this to understand who he is and what he was capable of or what he had already done or what kind of grace had he already expressed to her in her sinfulness. She had a very intentional, grateful response to who Jesus was. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him. Do you love that? The guy thought to himself and Jesus answered him. It'd be really hard to be Jesus' friend. Be like, hey, hey, stop reading my mind, man. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And so Jesus told this parable to illustrate this worship, this grateful response. This is Jesus' story. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender, and one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Two men, one owed him 10 times what the other guy owed him. A denarii is about a day's wage, so. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Which one? of them will love him more? Which one of the men will love the forgiver more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, which was a custom when you entered someone's home, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, has demonstrated. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. That's the word of the Lord. Now, when you look at this, this definition again in light of that story, the definition, what's worship? It's a grateful, intentional response to who God is and what he has done. You see the response, the, resp- the response idea is worship is somebody who gets it, somebody who gets it and then responds appropriately to it. And you see this woman getting it. What do they get? They get who he is and what he can do. They get who he is and what he has done. This is what the definition of worship is. They get it. And they respond to it. There's another passage where Jesus engaged with a woman, had a conversation about worship. It's the woman at the well in, in, uh, in John chapter 4. And in that passage, Jesus said to her, if you understood who it is you're talking to, you see that who he is and what he has done? Jesus said, if you, if you knew it, who it is you're talking to, and then he said, and if you knew the gift of God, that's what he's done. Jesus basically said, if you knew who God is, and if you knew what he has done, and then he went on to talk about how you would ask for streams of living water to come and flow into you, that you'd want to be satisfied by this God. He has this worship conversation about worshiping in spirit and in truth. 
This worship is this intentional, it's this response. It's a, it's a getting it, and then it's, a, it's a, a responding to it. And it's a response out of gratitude. It's clearly out of gratitude, as you see the woman in this passage. She had encountered Jesus. Her response had shown already how much she had been forgiven and knew it. And then it's intentionally expressed. She came to tell him how much she loved him and honored him and worshipped him and wanted to serve him. It was an intentional expression. That reminds me of my favorite Valentine's joke, given Valentine's, not really a joke, it's just sort of a reality that a lot of us grew up with. And it's where an older couple are there and a woman, the woman says to her, her uh, husband of 30 years, uh, so uh, how come you never tell me how you feel anymore? And he goes, on the day we got married, I told you I loved you and if I change my mind, I'll let you know. Some of you are laughing too hard at that. But there was this intentional expression in this worship. There's an, intent, there's an intention to expressing that we get it. We get who you are and we get what you've done, God. So what is it? It's this response to God. Second, how does it form us? Second question, how does it form us? How does it change us? If spiritual practice is an intentional way of living out or acting that sets us before God so the Holy Spirit can change us, how does this transformation happen? And it's a very simple answer. It is that this. Worship is a rehearsing of what is true and therefore a reminder to live into it. It's a rehearsing of what is true, of what is true, truest, capital T-R-U-E, true. Because when we rehearse what is then there's this reminder to be living into it, to be comforted by it, to be at peace in it, to be submissive to it. And it orients us to responding to God and living according to his ways. Right, oh, I get it, that kind of a thing. So like all the spiritual practices in some ways do this, worship specifically helps us to get it because we keep rehearsing what's true about God. You're a sovereign God. You're a good God. You're the creator. You're the designer. You're the God who has power to heal and to change and to lead me and guide me. You're a God who wants a relationship with me. Right. That's right. Why am I not engaged in that relationship? Okay, God, here I am. And we put ourselves in the place where the Holy Spirit can change us. We're rehearsing what's true about him. And then we rehearse what's true uh, about what he's done. That I have been forgiven and set free truly from sin and shame and guilt. That I'm called to this adventure of this service to my king with this epic calling on my life that goes beyond taking care of myself and just spending time. And so we start our days rehearsing truth. We start our weeks on Sunday rehearsing the truth, not only about who he is, but about what he's done so that we go, okay, that's right, that's right, that's right, that's true. I get it. Here I am, God. And every time we put ourselves before God, we go, here I am in that truth the Holy Spirit comes and takes that will, takes that, that yes of ours and does his work. So that's how it forms us. That's how it changes. It's a rehearsing of what's true. My fast, I, my fast for Lent, I shared it on Wednesday night. Um, my, I'm fasting from Matt Lauer. It's a Matt Lauer fast. And I got totally mocked by people about it too because it was like, they're like, seriously, that's what you got. You're fasting from Matt Lauer. Yeah, I'm fasting from the, that doing... But here's how, here, let me make it sound a little more spiritual for you, okay? I'm fasting from having any diversions in my life, or any diversions first thing in the morning, 
except spending time with Jesus. I don't want any diversions. I found that I was just becoming dependent on a cup of coffee and mindless TV. Because, by the way, morning news is terrible. It's so useless. I mean, except there's a few recipes. I don't know. But I was finding that it was a diversion from getting on with the heavy, true, deep things of my life. I've got pain inside of me. I've got burdens that I carry. I've got people that I care for. I've got tasks to do that, frankly, if I could just hide from them for a little while longer, it would just give me a little comfort. That's so lame because they're all there. They're just there later. And then you're like, now i got to work till 9 o'clock tonight, right? But I thought, I'm going to start my day with Jesus. Well, this morning time, even for the last five days, is just like a worship experience. I'm putting myself in a place without any other diversions to remember who God is. So my time in prayer, my time in Scripture, my time in Scripture memory, Scripture memory, I'm doing that these days, is a rehearsal of what is truest. Those times already has reaped the benefit of me getting before God and going, here's the junk I'm carrying, God, and reflecting on the fact that he can handle that junk, he has forgiven that junk, that he has still equipped me and embraced me to go live for him even in the midst of that junk, that he's doing a healing work in me, that all the burdens I carry, he's like, I'm carrying for you today. It's just like, it's like five minutes alone with God and the truth is rehearsed enough to where I'm like, why do I not do that all the time? And to which God goes, duh. (laughs) How does it form us? It forms us because we rehearse what is true and then we live into that. And we're in the place where God can do his thing. I'm yours, God, and he can come. Another question. So who worships? In terms of understanding what worship is, the spiritual practice of worship, what are we talking about? To help us define what the practice is, I want to ask this question, who worships? A couple thoughts. All of creation worships. All of creation worships. The heaven and the universe itself worship. The scriptures say that the heavens declare the glory of God. And anybody out on a clear night in the mountains will get that. No atheist out in a clear mountain night sky. They declare the glory of God. Scripture says the trees of the field clap their hands. The rivers too. The seas resound. The mountains sing for joy. The meadows and the valleys sing and shout for joy over our God. Isn't that beautiful? And if you've been out of nature, you know what I'm talking about. All of creation conspires to worship who God is and what he's done. So all of creation does. But it includes us. It includes us humans. All of creation includes us humans. All humans worship. It's in us to worship. It is in us when we see something extraordinary to respond in a worship-like thing. Here's some people going to church. Check out a few pictures. I just want you to see. Look at those guys in church. They're worshiping, right? Look at them worshiping Jesus. That's awesome. Just, yeah, look at that. That's an awesome Sunday morning church. I can tell that's in church. Look at those people worshiping Jesus. Is that so good? Keep going. I just want to see all that. That guy. What church is that? Hey, if you dress up like that and come here, we know you're all in. Just Marin Covenant logo colors, kind of that maroon thing. That'd be awesome. Just keep going through those, Daryl. Yeah, and look at these guys. This is a police barricade holding back the women that were excited about worshiping. It was back on the first day that Marin Covenant started worship. And there, that's, that's, that was last Sunday morning. So these are 
It's in all human beings to respond, to worship, to be able to see something extraordinary and to give an appropriate response to it. It's in every one of us. We're built to be worshipers. Every one of us, not monks, not super Christians, not just women. Because this isn't about emotions, friends. This is not about being emotional. There are emotions involved often when our heart responds because that's what's in our heart. Emotions are the language of our heart, and our heart is the deepest place within us. So there are going to be emotions involved, but it's not emotional, and it's not for just emotional people. That's not what worship is. All humans were built to respond appropriately to what they see as extraordinary, who God is and what he has done. You may, not be the, you may not be the fan that's just like, in church. You wouldn't paint your face if your life depended on it. You wouldn't, if you're a Green Bay fan, you wouldn't go with the, the green, G, uh, you know, you wouldn't do that. That guy's got nothing to lose right there. All in. Get that off of there before it wrecks us. We can't unsee that. You can never unsee that. You may not be that guy. You may not be that guy in church, but all of us have it in us to respond to the glory, whether that's a heart-pounding last five seconds of a championship basketball game, whether that's your team driving down the field, and whether that's you getting in touch with what's true about who God is and what he's done. We're all built to respond. And you may not be that guy, but you may be the guy that goes, yeah. That's what I got. Raise your hand if you've high-fived a stranger at a sporting event. I just want to. Raise your hand if you've high-fived somebody next to you in church over how awesome Jesus is. That's what I thought. (laughs) But we're built that way. And so it could be that you give your buddies this at the football game. But that's worship. It's a response to who he is. All of creation worships. Also, grateful sinners worship. This is who worships, grateful sinners. It's a grateful thing. The woman in the text lived a sinful life. She was a sinner. And I wish I had time to preach more about that, but Jesus' parable is about having been forgiven much, and those people who have been forgiven much will love much. And worship is for people who understand that they've been forgiven much. They understand that they're broken. They understand that they're sinners. And it's not just about being sin. I said the word broken. It's not just about being sinners. Worship is for people who understand how broken they are and how far they fall short of who they were created to be. And so it's a gratefulness to the fact that we serve a restoring and a redeeming and a healing and an accepting Savior in the middle of where I am. See, here's the interesting point. The interesting point about this is that many of us feel like we can't worship because we're sinners. What I'm saying isn't true. I'm not following God. I'm so messed up. I'm trying to worship God. I'm going to give God my glory and my praise or whatever. But he's like, really? Seriously? You? Out of you. You're the one saying that? We think that's how God's treating us? So the interesting thing is that we, we think that we can't worship because we're sinners. But friends, the truth is we do worship because we're sinners. Because we worship in response to what's true about a God and what he has done. And what he has done has provided unconditional forgiveness and grace. And so that's what we worship out of. And so it's for sinners. And so the sinners, the most broken, the most dirty, the most messed up person here today should be the one who's singing the loudest. Because their people had a hard week, did you? (laughs) 
Because they're the people that are like, man, I cannot believe how good a news this is. This is extraordinary, and I'm going to respond extravagantly. Grateful sinners, that's who worships. Also, humble servants worship. You look at the woman in the text. She washed and anointed Jesus' feet. That, is a, that was the mark of a humble servant. The host didn't do his humble service. He didn't do his basic duty. It was sort of beneath him as a Pharisee to take this teacher who was sort of a guy who spent time with sinners, etc. It was beneath him to wash Jesus' feet or to anoint Jesus' head. But worshipers are humble servants. Worshipers come and say, God, this isn't even about me. This is about you. And I am at your service. And I bow down, as the term means in the Greek. I bow down before you on my face. You are a, I am your humble servant. I submit myself to you, my king, to whom I owe everything. That's what a worshiper is. It's a humble servant. And last, it's, a, it's a, who worships, it's extravagant spenders. It's people who really don't count the cost per se. It's those who don't measure out their offering to God. It's like that, there's this, the minimum the host should have done, this, this host in the text, this host should have had a little olive oil and he should have put a little spices on it, mixed it up, and he would have anointed the head of the people who came in off the hot, dusty road. This little anointing over their head would be a symbol of blessing over them, but it would also be just a little bit of fragrance, just simple olive oil with a little bit of fragrance, a spice in it. And that would be a little bit of a, that would help the body odor and just sort of the rawness of living in, you know, ancient Near East, right? It, and so that's what he should have done. Should have at least done that and washed their feet. He couldn't even bring himself to do that. But then Jesus is saying, and then you should have kissed me on both cheeks. You didn't offer me even one kiss when I came in. This woman can't stop kissing me. And she can't stop kissing my feet of all things. And this guy should have at least had a wet towel and wiped his feet. But the woman, she went way beyond that. And she wept. And she wiped her feet, her, his feet with her hair. And then the little dab of the little thing, you know, if the host had given a little bit of olive oil, a little fragrance, he could have done that. But then if a host was really generous, what a host could do is he could take his own alabaster jar of perfume and he could have taken a little dab of perfume, which would have been very fragrant. And it's very expensive. And people would have went, wow, okay, that's nice. That's a big hospitality. But the woman uncorked her perfume and poured the whole bottle out, the text says, and poured it out all over his feet, not even dabbing his head. There was not this counting the cost of, oh, I don't know how much I'm going to give. It's she saw something extraordinary, experienced who he was, and she was all in, friends. She was all in, and think about how exposed she was as a sinner. What that meant, her hair was down. She was known as a sinner. It wasn't a descriptive term. It was a title. So she was a prostitute, she was an outcast, and she came and she bowed before him, totally exposed, weeping, uncontrollable, snot, everybody looking at her like, seriously, you're such a sorry excuse for a woman. She was exposed, extravagant offering of worship to him. I don't know what that looks like in your particular case, but when we hold back, we're much like the Pharisee. When we hold back of our response to God, we're like, I don't know what you've got or whether you're beneath me, but I'm certainly not going to be exposed here. But worshipers give an extravagant response. All right, well, last, we'll end with this. How do I practice it? How do I practice worship? How do I practice this spiritual practice of worship where I'm going to act and live in such a way that I put myself in God's presence so the Holy Spirit can transform me. Well, here's an easy practice. You're here. Well done. Well done. Check that box. Because this is our worship gathering. And come next week, that will be your box. 
come here because, and then we, because we corporately, intentionally engage in each component that we do together in worship. And by the way, isn't doing it corporately, just, isn't there a certain encouragement about that? There's a direction, there's an, there's an energy. It's not just sort of this, you know, uh, group think, but it's this power in people re- reminding you, rehearsing you about what's true and doing it all together. So we corporately come to worship and engage in all of these thoughtfully engage, intentionally engage in every practice we do from the offering to the Lord's table to hearing the sermon to greeting one another to singing the the words of the songs. That's how we practice it. We come to church. But also it's any personal practice like I described in my fast time and my time in the mornings um, where I'm going to meet with Jesus before anything else. There's a little personal worship experience where I reflect and rehearse on what God has done. And I'm memorizing scripture as part of it. It's one of the best ways to rehearse it. But any practice that you do, anything of reflection and prayer, is part of this kind of worship practice. Anything that helps you remember and then respond. And then I would go even broader and I'd say, you know, any moment in your week where you have this God moment, where you have this moment of gratefulness that you see who God is, you see the value of God or what he's done. And that moment could be a well, Christian moment, you know, like about Jesus and in your Bible or whatever, or it could be any experience of beauty or pain or friendship where you realize God is in the middle of this somewhere. Any conversation where you think, wow, that was a God thing. The encouragement I felt or that I was able to give. Any answered prayer you see, any moment of longing that comes from within you and you go, man, that's God at work causing me to stir and want to be the man he created me to be or the woman that he designed me to be. Any of those moments where you go, that's kind of cool, that's kind of a God thing. You guys, that's an opportunity for worship. That's an opportunity for you then to respond to who he is and how you see him in that moment of beauty or pain or friendship or just life. So your homework this week, and um, band, you can come up because we're going to move from there into our worship time. Your homework this week, come to church next week. That'll be it. That's your homework. That'd be awesome. But during the week, look for one God moment that you can record, you, you can experience it and record it as, I see God's worth right now. I see God's worth right now. And then to be able to respond to him and say, God, you're so good and you're so beautiful and I give you my life and I want more of you in my life. If some of you are fasting, you're going to have several God moments because as you hunger for that, you know, craving the sugar that you're giving up or the carbs or whatever, um, or that activity that you would normally do at 7 p.m. or whatever the deal is. When you hunger for it, you'll have a God moment where you realize that God's stirring in you this longing. I'll have just this quick conversation with God that feels something along the lines of, again, repent. I can't believe it's that become that important to me. And then believe the good news. God, you fill me. You'll actually have a God moment. God will come and meet you in those moments and fill you. And you'll be like, you're real. Dang, you're real. And then God says again, duh, yeah. Write that down and record it as your experience. Look, see if God doesn't give you one or more of those this week. The practice of worship, where we rehearse what's true about God and then respond appropriately. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to move to the, for the remaining 20 minutes that we have left on our worship gathering, we're going to move to an experience of responding to God in worship, like we do every week. And actually, we're cramming a number of worship kinds of gatherings we have into one gathering. So in a few minutes, uh, Art's going to set us into motion, and we're going to stand, the music's going to play, and we're going to sing songs. 
like we often do. And I hope as you sing those songs, you rehearse the truth. I hope you talk to God between the lines. You say things like, make that true for me, God. I hope as you sing the songs, you enter into every line and every word of the song and then engage, respond to him. But even while we're singing, we want to give you the freedom to move about the cabin since the captain has turned off the no seatbelt rule light. And moving about the cabin is that we've set up over here, we've set up a wall that is expressing our worship to God. And you see the first gathering's responses to the Lord. Any kind of expression of worship to who God is and what he's done. It can be a note. It can be a scripture. It can be a photo. It can be a, I mean, not a photo, picture. I mean, take a photo. Take a photo. Do a selfie in front of it. Whatever you got to do. Um, express your worship to who God is and what he's done in that. Just the freedom of responding with the music over you and what we've talked about. Like, yeah, God, this is, I worship you because. So any kind of response over there, expression over there would be awesome. Um, we have offering, an offering basket here and two in the back uh, where they often are. Come and bring your offering to the Lord as we do every Sunday. And as you come, we hope that you remember that offering is worship. That's why we do offering the way we do it. It isn't just paying the church bills. It never has been about that. It's about saying that, God, everything you've given to me is from you. And I now take a tithe. I take a portion of what you've given me, and I invest it into the kingdom to let you know I'm all in on the kingdom of God. And I want to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so, yeah, it's super pragmatic. You have a plan to give to the church you love because you want to be involved in ministry in Marin and around the world, and that costs money, yes. And beyond that, it's an act of... And with that, that itself is an act of worship. You come and you say, okay, God, here I am, and I'm trusting you that you'll take care of my needs and that I'll be a kingdom person more and more and more every day. So come and bring your offering during that time. There are, um, there's a communion station here, and we had communion last Sunday, then we had it Ash Wednesday, and then we're having it again. I checked the rules. Three times in eight days is not illegal. It's totally <laughs> fine. And so you can come and, and come to the table. We'll do it by intinction, which is a dipping experience, and you meet the Lord at the table, and you remember rehearse what Jesus said. Remember what he said about it? He said, do this in remembrance of me. Because as, as often as we do this, eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim what he's done. We remind and we rehearse. There's envelopes on the seat backs in front of you. There's envelopes with a little bit of stationery there. And we want to invite you, if it feels like a response you want to do, to write a letter to God a responsive worship letter to God. Anything you want to say out of your response to who he is and what he's done. Now, I don't know what you want to do with that letter. Maybe you want to fill out the front of it with your address and then on the back write, please mail this to me in six months. Or maybe you want to put it in the offering plate as, a, as an offering. Or maybe you want to put it in your Bible and put it in an offering plate later because you want to reflect on it for a few weeks. But write a letter to God as a, as a way of reacting and responding to who God is. There's kneelers on both sides over here if you want a physical posture that demonstrates your submission as God's humble servant. Um, we'll also read some scripture over you and ask you to read some scripture with us as a way to respond. In other words, we're just going to engage in sort of this freedom. God's in this house. We're brothers and sisters in his house. And we're going to come and say thank you, God, for who you are and what you've done. Before we get there, we want Art to come and call us into that moment. Do you want this, bro? So, for now, put yourself in the position of that person who, whom uh, Pastor Jeff mentioned in his message. How in the world can I worship? 
when I so deeply sin, I'm not worthy of worship. I can't sink to that level of duplicity where I'm thinking one thing in my heart and then sort of feels like pretending another thing with my hands raised or my hands open. And remember, it's those who have been forgiven the most that should be the most excited. Let's take a second, just, I'm going to give you maybe 10 seconds, but be silent for a second, around, or 10 seconds, around this idea of confession and repentance. And I want to remind you of something after that. It might be confession around the, the things that cause our brokenness, that keep us out in the lobby of life. Uh, not maybe so much, hey, last night I was mean to my child. But Lord, we, I confess that there is this culture of rudeness that I participate in. I confess that there is this uh, culture of flippancy about the death of a Supreme Court justice and all the jesting. I can, and I participated in that, Lord. Confess for a few seconds. And then I want to remind you of something very, very important. I'm not worried it'll worship. Tell me something. I'm walking east. Tell me when I take the step that steps me over the line where now I'm walking west. Was it that step? How about this step? You just keep walking east and there's always more east to find. You know why? Because in that sense, east never touches west. I want to remind you that God said, I remember your sin no more when you repent. In fact, I cast it as far as the east is from the west. You are forgiven. Remember what it says in 2 Chronicles 7? It says in 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, repent, confession, I'm going to hear them. I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will bring healing to their land. I want to remind you that unless God was doing a bait and switch, tricking and lying to us, you're forgiven. And in 1 John 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, in other words, literally, if we agree with God, yep, that was sin. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You are forgiven in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because of the work of Christ. You are made new. You don't have to stand out in the lobby. You have the right to worship because of what Christ has done for you.
let's worship.